If I sound a little congested, uh, I'm not sure what transpired throughout the week, but I felt like I came down with something. Uh, so, I'd be in mind if I pause to catch my nose or I pause to cough. You know why. <laughs> Ooh, what an interesting week it has been. As we continue in our exposition of the Gospel of John, we have now arrived at chapter number 7. Now, of which this chapter in particular has approximately 53 verses. And my intent today is not so much to relegate all uh, 53 verses, because uh, in particular, this chapter has an opportunity to be a standalone. But we're going to allow this chapter to be an opportunity to, believe it or not, segue us as we move forward in looking at our master's earthly ministry. So with that being said, let us look to our Lord, our God, in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful that we are able to be here able-bodied. After taking in the reading of the word and have taken in and made our prayer supplications known to you now, Lord, we have arrived at this time where the word is being preached to your people. So be with thy servant as he teach and preaches to the people, and be with them and let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive the word. For as if the very truth is spoken, it has come from your very mouth. So in Christ is holy and precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, looking at chapter number 7, it has a viewpoint into the Master's earthly ministry. Now, granted, we've come from a chapter of which he takes on a number of individuals, and they are witnesses to what he has done. Um, but here we're going to take, or John has made an intent to take our view to a different portion. And the sermon that the master will take with the individuals in the temple has some sort of similarity, but... The intent behind it, nonetheless, is very consistent in which what we've seen prior, which is, in order to discern spiritual things, you must be born again. In order to understand things from above, the Father must draw you and you must be enlightened. Now, from an introduction, for starters, we noted by chapter 6, the Lord fed many. And in various portions, he also, quote unquote, walked on the sea. But in the latter portions of the synoptic, in the other synoptic gospels, by which we note in Mark and in Matthew, in that particular portion, the story, as the narrative goes, he arrives at a different port, at a different uh, venue or destination. Uh, 
And upon his arrival, men recognized him. And upon recognizing him, they went and sought all those who were sick, lame, mute, blind, to be healed at the touch of his cloak. And they were. They were. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes a break nonetheless. And he notes that though the master resides to pray alone, Luke 9.18, and rather than taking to walking on the sea, during his journey, he stops in Sisera Philippi. And upon which stopping, the master looks at his disciples and he poses a question. What do the people say that I am? Now, the disciples know by Luke 19 and 20, well, some have said you are John the Baptist. Some have said you are Elijah. Others have said you are one of the prophets of old that have risen again. But by verse 20, he denotes this point. But what do you say that I am? And in context here, Peter responding back and stating, and the proposition is very clear, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, this can be seen by Matthew 16, 13 through 19, Mark 8, 27 to 29. But in Matthew, in particular, verse 17 in Matthew 16, the Messiah is going to answer a little bit differently here, and it's consistent. He states, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has. But what's so telling? What is so telling here? By Matthew 16, 20, Mark 8, 30, and Luke 9, 21, they were instructed not to tell anyone. What? Again, the Messiah, is it something where he likes to seal and play magic tricks to be like, here I am, and then another point, here I am? No. It's a tell, especially given the blessing he gives to Simon, of which he's making it very distinct. You will never believe I am the Christ. Simply put, unless the Father opens your eyes. Unless that heart of stone has been turned to a heart of flesh. In fact, this particular instruction came with a very important adage. And I want you to note this because we're going to come back in full circle. By Luke 9.22, he even continues and states, Upon his struggle not to tell anyone, he states, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now this is very telling because after inquiring, inquisitive about the disciples as to what the rumor seems to be about the current Redeemer, our master then, after Peter answers, tells them, do not tell this to anyone. What does my soliloquy allow us to do? It allows us to segue now properly into John 7 because it's now going to become apparent that the rumors have swelled. The contention and discords have raised a level and even inks has been shown amongst the Jews. We have here that in the beginning of the chapter in John 7 verses 1 through 9, the Messiah has a discourse with his brothers by birth. That means these are the very blood brothers of Jesus Christ, the man. And the evangelist by verse number 10 makes a segue to shows that the Messiah has separated himself from them. By verse 11 to 13, we note, or it can be seen, some seek him. By asking, where is he? To this, it leads to much grumbling among the crowds who was concerning him. You had others defending him, saying, he is a good man. While others denouncing him, saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. They all make these points but not allow their conversation to go above a whisper. For by verse 13, you could not speak openly because you feared the chief scribes and the rulers of the church. So, when our master arrives by verse 14, he arrives with perfect timing. And he teaches to those who will lend the ear in the temple. But do not ascribe the teaching, not yet anyway, alike to what he was sh I'll showing you, in particular with Matthew 16 and Mark 8 and Luke 9. This teaching was to grab their attention as to quell curiosity or provide an answer to the murmurings that was amongst the people. For now, in his execution of his office as Christ, he looked at no better way to provide this teaching. I say this because with the Feast of the Jews or the Feast of the Booths, with every particular custom, there was many ceremonies. But God did not make this a time of being slack that the people could not be taught doctrine. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, this feast of the booths represented a time of which it was a remembrance for Israel that they have come from Egypt onto the promised land and Canaan. And the Lord speaks to Moses and he commands Israel to make makeshift booths. If you would like to take note of this feast, you can read Leviticus 23, 33 through, through 43. 
And by this celebration, Israel will heed the constant warnings against simplicities and not to be forgetful that God redeemed them from slavery and bondage. Another example of this, Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 20. So as the crowd amass, and we take note as he preaches, verse 15 makes something very interesting. John states, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having been educated? We're at a feast of ceremonies. We're at a time to celebrate God's prior year provisions for our lives. And yet the Messiah coming in secret, then being revealed as he is taken to a corner of the temple and exclaims to the people, the people are amazed. I mean, wasn't it just recently that some were defending him and others accusing him? So now we take to what they see as an astonishment by what he has conveyed. In fact, it's even interesting because if you would take a historical context, especially to those who are teachers and rulers, they will wear particular garments to denote their offices. And yet he comes in, not taking to that same garment of the Levitical priesthood. So it makes sense. A man who dresses plainly can articulate, can enunciate, and pronounce the oracles of God. <laughs> Do you recall in John 6, 42, some felt like they even knew him. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who father and mother we know? And being that his hometown is Nazareth, the lowest of the lows in the region, Nathan, or Nathaniel, states well by John 1, 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So their astonishment here is well intended by the evangelists. I'm wondering why I might be even thinking. Surely they must be impressed. <laughs> Actually, on the contrary, no. For if a man is coming from the lowest of the lows, especially from the region of Nazareth, can so eloquently explain the king, the orators and oracles of God, huh, we despise him with jealousy. And yet, I say all this to say, well, you are supposed to be entrusted with the oracles and the salvation of God to the people. Why does your jealousy then run hot? Did, weren't you not commissioned to go and spread the word by your own admission, claiming to be sons of Abraham, as we will get to later in the chapters of John? Have you not gone out to seek and show those true seeds by bringing those into the church? Why does your emotion run hot with jealousy? 
because by our Lord's own reproof of them, in John 5, verse 42, he showed truly the love of God was never in you. And your hope was never set in him, but in Moses. So, as the Lord is going to state, it makes very clear why he would want to respond. By verse 16 in John 7, my teaching then is not my teaching. Because you see, he's making it very clear by showing this sense of consistency. By John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. It's kind of funny. Because now here comes the test amongst the people. Especially since we're amongst the crowd of those defending him. And others accusing him. So off this same play, we're going to continue and we're going to see it shape forward. Can you discern what is true and what is not? This is going to be the big overlying theme throughout this Oh, I apologize throughout this chapter. It's amazing because before, when we were taken to the prior verses, the reproof and the admonishment was almost on a par with attacking the individual in regards to their lack of understanding to one point or another, or their sense of hypocrisy to one point or another. Here is very telling that now he's putting them to the test to see if they can understand as they claim to be. Can you discern as you said you can discern? Because now almost going forward from here, this same kind of attribute and attitude you have with the Jewish people is going to be seen again and again, especially in chapter eight. <laughs> So by which, when the Messiah states in John seven sixteen, my teaching is not my teaching, but his who sent me. He is showing simply the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that he's installed and been endowed with comes from God. In fact, I even show point to show a stamp on his divinity. He continues and when he continues in the verses 16, you will note how he tries to make this complimentary piece in regards with the father in himself. But this knowledge and wisdom that he is bestowing to us as we are coming from it from the opening of reading it here. We should have confidence and understand that this knowledge and wisdom came 
as one from the human aspect of his humanity. He grew in knowledge as a child. But then number two, to take that knowledge and ensure that he's going to show its proper use. The propositions and the axioms and the maxims are now put to harmony. He's able to convey that with such clarity. The only key piece is, how do you discern if what he's saying to be true or what is not? How do you test this? The statement here is not saying, can you test God? No one can test God. The statement is here saying, when you hear the words being preached, how do you discern it to be true or it not to be true? And this is where the change, and follow me here, this is where the change in one person attitude is going to be the fruit of someone who can spiritually discern. Your opportunity to take and listen and hear and then take the scriptures and see, do you see the consistency by what's being spoken? Now, for us looking into this, we know that all the treasures and knowledge are endued in him. Colossians 2, 3 and 4, by which the Godhead dwells in the fullness and him bodily. Colossians 2, 9. But I'm going to play, I'm going to be pragmatic here. Because we've just come from a portion of where the Jews were having this discourse with him in the synagogue. In the prior chapter. So they're taking to the aspect of being amazed and astonished by what he's speaking of. So they're claiming to say, well, we should know scripture. Given that what he's spoken. If it were to be the case. That they know of the Christ and how he was to come. How is it then that they can not understand someone who can, who could have come or his hometown resides from Nazarene could have been taught the word of God? Was not the image of God in due to all men according to Moses in Genesis 1, 26? God said, let us make men in our own image after our likeness. And wasn't by God's providential care, <laughs> note here, by his providential care, man was endued with knowledge, Genesis 3, 22, and the Lord God said, behold, man is one of us to know good and evil. In fact, our confession states, by chapter 3 in section B, after our parents sinned, in that God, seeing this and preventing them from touching the tree of life. Our confession states it was in this it, it was in their sin God was pleased. Why? Because according to his wise and holy counsel, he permitted having purpose to order it to his own glory. The fact that the Messiah has come and did not come in the most ravish 
ways of being brought to this earth, the Jews should have been able to discern. But why could they have not? Because they just clearly weren't drawn by the Father. And he's telling you this plainly. He is telling them plainly. <laughs> the fact that in the wisdom of the Godhead, the Messiah has come and was considered to be the weak things of the world. It was to shame those who are in the strong. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. And what better way to exclaim it? By showing a man from Nazareth. So that when he came and his body, he can also confirm scripture. Isaiah 53, 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor was his appearance so much that we should be attracted to him. <laughs> oh, but you would think, you would hope, why, surely, the Jews would be quenched by his answer. But, no, they aren't. So our Lord continues. By stating the reproof by verse number 17, if anyone is willing to do his will. Well, which one of you? Which one of you know the will of the Father? Because if you do know his will, you will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether it is of myself. You see, he exclaims here that sound judgment and wisdom flows from a fear and reverence of God. And note the first clause. It goes right back to something I believe even the pastors and I have heart again and again. The sheer obedience. If you fear God, you would obey him. If you said you love God, you'll keep his commandments. Oh, speaking of the commandments, we'll get to that at a later point here. But nonetheless, he questions, do you really fear God? In fact, he gave him a point of plainly. What duty does God requires of man? You see, as he gives this question to point off their hypocrisy, he now comes with the later clause in verse 17 to note, if you do fear God, you will know the teaching and you'll be able to discern if I'm speaking of myself or I'm speaking from one who sent me. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. They should have been easy. It should have been easy when he spoke to perceive if he was telling the truth or not. And you would think that after 400 years since the last prophet, surely the Messiah will have some empathy. That they were led astray. You know, Lord, we've been here and there. We've been taken advantage of. Now we were under the Babylonians and the Persians. 
and now we're under Roman authority. Surely you would have mercy on us that along the way the doctrines can get skewed. No, no. He wasn't having that. In fact, and I say this by saying this same group, and I just mean that by the fact that they're saying the sheer ideology, not the same individuals. Did you not recall how they try to use scripture at him at verse 30 and 31 in chapter 6 when they spoke about the manna? And what's interesting, especially what I conveyed earlier by John 5, 43, as the Messiah stated that they set their hope in Moses, wasn't it Moses who also stayed a watch against the danger of falling into error? By Deuteronomy 13.3, he states, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. Is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I mean, the same understanding is for the church of today. Colossians 2.8. See it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Nor according to the tradition of men. Or according to the elementary principles of the world. But rather according to Christ. It's amazing because Messiah notes to them again in chapter 5 by verse 44, you receive glory from one another because how can one hate themselves? And by verse 18 in chapter 7 of John, he states, he who speaks of himself seeks his own glory. So therefore, he's noting to them, your care is not to do the will of the Father. You seek to exalt yourselves because you thought your knowledge or your scent of knowledge is where you have eternal life. Did he not warn them in John chapter 5? You search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life. But in that same proposition and note, he notes, those same scriptures speak of me. By obscuring the glory of God, he shows that men only contributes to their own ambition and exalting themselves. <laughs> he even noted it. by It's amazing. He tells them plainly. He said in John 5, 31, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But then note here, as he provides the contrast, because going back to John 7 by verse 18 in the second and third clause, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. The Messiah is making it very pointed. And he's very consistent. He's very clear. If you do the will of the Father, you will be able to discern spiritual things. 
but not just be able to discern. Your aim and walk in life will always be guided by a hand. You'll never be deceived. You'll never go wrong. Proverbs 2, 5, verse, five through 9. I'm sorry, 6 through 9. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. By verse number 7, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. He guards their path to justice. He preserves the ways of all his godly ones. And look by verse number nine. Then you will discern righteousness and judgment. He plainly tells you. He's plainly telling you. But if someone stands on this pulpit and can speak all these oracles and you're sitting there it's not so much you may not understand. If you don't believe, it's because you may not be of the fathers in the first place. And some things that are clear, some things that should really explain themselves with the way they are stated, they are meant that way to the benefit of your salvation. Remember I stated earlier, the Messiah is not speaking in parables, not here. We haven't got a parable yet. So this is doctrine being provided. And oh, what substance that this doctrine holds. Because now as we come to verses 19 through 24, our Lord is giving this substance even more clarity. Because now it's not so much the back and forth that's the amazement. He's going to attack them at the very source of what they thought they believed. Note the common ideal. Remember in John 5, he said, you set your hope in Moses. And note the question he gives in John seven nineteen: Did not Moses give you then the law? So he revised the ground, Moses and the law. But then note how he reproves them by their absolute hypocrisy. Yet none of you carries out the law, meaning you are not moved by any love or any zeal for the law, let alone to do what is required. In fact, our master could even state it plainly in this way. Even though the fact is salvation is from the Jews. Remember what he told the Samaritan woman in John 4, chapter, uh, John 4, verse 22? You're still not exonerated from the fact that you have to obey the law. Are you? Because then if you are keepers of the law, if it is true, salvation is from the Jews, why then do you seek to kill me? By verse number 20, their response leads them in stupor. For by accusing him of an absolute offense, 
they go to the greatest damnation or a curse they can ever do. You have a demon! Because though they replied by question, they state this to contradict them. No, we know the law. So they point out to it. Who then here is seeking to kill you? Well, if this was the case, it's amazing and it's just how beautiful. Because as a, it's not, this is not going to be a break, but it's so amazing as to their question, the Messiah is going to answer it. Do you recall in John 6 when they had asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? After having their temporal needs being met, our Lord is going to answer them back plainly here. For by referring back to John 5, when he cured the lame man on the Sabbath day, note what the evangelist states in John 5, 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So then note what our Messiah states in John 7, 21 through 24. I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. circumcision, Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath day, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath day, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man whole on the Sabbath? Note the confirmation to bring this back to full circle. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. You claim to have said, Moses is whom you set your hope for. Moses provided you the law. Here you state in order to keep the law, you do an act even on the Sabbath day as you claimed you quote unquote obeyed. But now on the Sabbath day, when I cured a man and obeyed the law of God, you seek to kill me. Show me the consistency here. Show me who's telling the truth and who is not. Now, you might have been wondering, I did not read or conveyed anything too much with the beginning portions of Jesus and his discussion with the brothers. But I did this on purpose because now let me bring you back. If you go back to the beginning portion of John 7, especially I bring your attentions to verse number 3 and 4, note how his brothers were trying to implore him to go out. Note here. Leave here, go to Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works. Oh, see my works, huh? See what you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Did he not heal the paralytic man in a public venue? And what, look what they sought to do here. If you do these things, Show yourself to the world. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
Because the evangelist makes it clear why they state that statement. Even after the Lord cured the lame man. By verse 5, his brothers were not even believing in him. They thought it was a magic trick. They thought it was a parlor thing. They thought it was just a, huh, that's cute. And by verses 6 through 8, our Lord makes a very quiet response. Because he even notes here, my time is not yet here. Though your time is always opportune, the world cannot hate you because it hates me as I testify of it that our deeds are evil. To bring it back full circle, especially with the secrecy that the Messiah gave to the disciples. It's amazing that now I have some clarity as to why he told them not to say anything. If you want to note, the same propositions are all the same in Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31, and I'll be reading from Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Here we have what's going to be understood as the Messiah will be suffering and as we're coming to John 7, we're showing the clear rejection. We are showing the clear rejection by the chief priests, rulers, and scribes. And as we get to this clear rejection, we can see. We can always see. Note as John 7, 25 to 31 is going to take. To which the people are now perplexed. Because they pose this question by verse 25. Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And yet look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? I'm going to stop there. And the reason why I'm going to stop there is the fact that I believe we now have what we need to move forward as the remaining pastors are going to come behind me as they're going to exclaim to this chapter. But one thing that should be taken as what we've seen and analyzed from where we are right now is the sheer fact of how there is a difference between being able to discern spiritually and to still be in your sins. You should be able to tell what is false. And what is true. And that the evangelist has made this point. Apparent. In this chapter. It should give us as a church solace. To understand how we are to examine our own selves. I'm very careful in regards to the individuals I hear preach and convey the word. I'm not abstained from not trying to lend an ear, but I'm very cautious. But if anything, I always take with an understanding that if they do speak the truth of God, I should take it at heart. That is the very word of God himself speaking. 
but of which if these people or these individuals are not those who are moved by the spirit to orient and properly give the word of God, we should be equipped to discern and see those things. We should not boast in the fact that I know Calvinism. I can recite the confession. I know all the answers to the larger and shorter catechism questions. That's all great. That's all fine. But in you having this knowledge, what has it done for you in your walk? See, the questions provide an answer if you have hurdles and obstacles that appear in your own life. If you don't know how to approach a certain situation, you should be able to look to the catechism questions, either large or shorter, to see truly, truly, how do I obey God in this situation? That is the difference between those who are able to spiritually discern and those who are still in their sins. There will be those who seek to be puffed up in their knowledge. There will be those who want to seek obedience to God's word. That's the question that many should pose today. Which road or which side of the fork are you willing to walk on? Or better yet, which one? Exalt yourself. That's the road you might want to avoid. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer?